Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome back to the show. This episode written by Kevin. Thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, jazzing it out with the Axeman of New Orleans. I have definitely made a video about this before. I can't remember quite where, but this is about a dude who was like, I command you all to play jazz music at the town of New Orleans, or I will come and murder people. And so they did. And I'm not going to spoil it. I've kind of already spoiled it, right? But let's just jump into it. Oh, if you're new here, welcome to your first episode of The Casual Criminals. The format of this show is I've never read this before. Uh, it's uh, Even though I'm vaguely familiar with this story, normally I'm not really familiar with it at all. We're going to read it together and uh, yeah, we're just going to explore what happens. Let's go. I played several musical instruments from childhood through my first couple of years at college. Among them was the tenor sax, which I played in my high school's jazz band. We were really good and actually have got a lot of incredible experiences because of it. The music we played was always a lot of fun, but there was something I learned from my years of performing jazz. Normal people don't like jazz. Are you serious? Wait, what do you mean? Jazz is great. <laughs> Normal people like jazz, don't they? Jazz is popular because it's nice. Okay, seriously, do you know anybody who likes jazz that isn't? I'm not a musician <laughs> who isn't also a musician. I'm not a musician. I, I used to play piano when I was a kid, and I'm like, I like. I'm in this position right now. Like, I wish that I had like stayed with piano. Like everyone says this, right? Like, oh, I wish I'd stuck with this musical instrument, and I'm like. Yeah, but I hated it. I hated playing it as a kid. I love playing it as an adult. I'm terrible at it, but I love doing it. And yeah, I just now wish I had the time to learn how to. I could spend some time learning piano. That'd be nice. Although I always think I'm going to take up hobbies. And I try to take up hobbies and then I immediately fail because I just don't have enough time because I have two young children and quite a demanding job. I mean, it's not demanding. I sit here and read a script to you. But it, it, you know, it's 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 a job. I have a job, like a full-time job that I have to do. And also... And it's more than full-time. I work more than, like, full-time hours. And also kids and everything. So I don't have time for hobbies, which is a shame. I'm going to learn piano someday. <laughs> when I was in school, everyone's parents would come to our competitions to support us, but I doubt any of them actually enjoyed jazz either. It's not like we'd hop in the car and throw on John Coral Train for the drive home from the competition. That was the time to listen to real music. Heavy metal guitar solos inspired by the likes of Vivaldi and Beethoven. You can take the A-Train all you like, but me and Ozzy are going off the rails on a crazy train. Jazz also teaches people some pretty questionable lessons. The first rule of jazz improv is there's no such thing as a wrong note. If you play what would normally be considered a wrong note, just keep playing it over and over again until somehow it becomes right. <laughs> or your instructor throws a chair at your head. That's a terrible lesson to teach a person. That would be like somebody being publicly scolded for the length of their introductions of their scripts and then decide to lean into longer and longer intros instead of addressing the issue. Is that true, Kevin? <laughs> but times were undoubtedly different a hundred years ago. Jazz was a brand new style of music originating in New Orleans. The jazz age, it is called. The rhythms are syncopated. The morals are looser. The liquor is cheaper. When you can get it. The new musical craze had many bands, and among them was a literal demon from the very depths of hell. Kevin, do you understand literal? <laughs> he was literally a demon. I mean, I guess it depends how you define demon, doesn't it? My apologies, Kevin. Or just a murderous psychopath. But it was definitely one of those two. He was just a murderous psychopath. Although, I mean, is demon actually like some spiritual, like, demon, like, from the Bible or some shit like that? Or is it like someone's a demon can be like someone's evil? I don't know. Does it matter? Not really. Let's carry on. 
Separating fact from fiction. Though the story has become popular in recent times thanks to the rise of true crime content, the Axeman of New Orleans was pretty obscure for a long time. There were newspaper articles at the time, but once the initial public panic died down, the story largely disappeared. Even though the murders were never solved, the first book to feature the story of the Axeman wouldn't be written until almost 30 years later. So, in a way, he was a lot like Jesus. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Like, the Bible, the Jesus story is written like three decades later. And, like, stuff things will have you know changed in people's minds like if i was like writing about me as a five-year-old right now it wouldn't be very accurate it'd be like school stuff five i don't remember anything about being five the problem with interest in the case subsiding almost as quickly as the panic set in is that it's hard to separate the facts about the case from the fiction even the first book that contains the story was a collection of folk tales set in louisiana and folk tales aren't notorious for the factual accuracy. Even the newspapers at the time weren't great at reporting facts, and there was a lot of speculation and fantasy. Yeah, it was like back in the day, there's that whole yellow journalism thing where it was like newspapers were trying to outsell each other, but they'd do that by just like making some shit up and embellishing stories. And even, even these days, where like, I feel like the press is kind of, there's so much trash out there, there's very few publications which are just like, yeah, we're just gonna embellish and kind of make shit up. I mean, they exist. What's that British paper that I always think of, which has some, like, crazy headlines and stuff, which are clearly, like, just made up. But, um, for the most part, there has to be some sort of kernel of truth in a story rather than just, like, absolute outright lies. According to contemporary news reports, the Axeman could have claimed anywhere from 12 victims in New Orleans to over 100 victims across multiple states and countries. More recent research into the crimes has identified it as likely being the work of at least two American serial killers and some entirely unrelated crimes in Germany. Why would you think those were related in the first place? This is, like, 100 years ago. Even nowadays, you'd be like, yeah, these crimes in Germany and in New Orleans are, are related. Be, that would be a huge stretch and there are like these giant planes that fly around the world back in the day i'd be like and then i took a steamer for three weeks across the north atlantic it's like very different times a few years before the subject of today's episode there were a number of murders that have since been named the mulatto axe murders of texas and louisiana though at the height of the axeman panic newspapers were willing to group them all together and be linked to a single killer. We're going to focus just on the 12 victims in New Orleans and immediate surrounding areas that were attacked in 1918 and 1919. It's possible that the Axeman claims more victims, but these are the only ones we can say for sure were tied to the same killer. I know I said I made a video about this before, but I don't actually remember if this guy gets caught. And the fact that we're talking about this and we don't know the details and we don't there's not a name in the title makes me think like we don't know who this was. And I think that's that's what it is because normally you'd be like yeah you have some idea of the victim count and stuff because you know once they're caught they're like yeah and i killed all these people and there's just that confession or whatever which is quite satisfying not in a good way it's like okay at least we know whereas in these ones it's like oh god we just don't know there could be people who are just murdered and then just never found because no one loved them that's depressing the axe man cometh Italian grocer Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine were sleeping in their bed on the night of the 23rd of May 1918. A man hopped the fence into their backyard, grabbing the family axe as he made his way to the door. It was common at the time for nearly every family to have an axe, and most were either kept in plain sight around the house or in the backyard. 
for easy access. I have an axe. I have a little house in the countryside and it's got a little fireplace in there and there's this woodshed and it's filled with wood and then when I went to start, need to start a fire and I don't want to like go into the little foresty area and collect some little sticks to start a fire with, I'll just get the axe and chop up a piece of wood into like smaller pieces and then start a fire. And uh, yeah, what a fascinating story, Simon. Thanks for that. As the man approached the back door, he pulled out a screwdriver and began prying a panel off the door so that he could gain access to the house. Despite already wielding an axe, he saw a straight razor on the table and decided that it would probably be more effective as a weapon, at least to start. An axe is a pretty terrible weapon at extreme close range against someone who is fighting back, so the smaller blade would allow him to make quick work of the couple. He entered the room where Joseph and Catherine were sleeping and got to work. Then it's a bit weird that you'd pick the axe then, right? You're like, I need a weapon. I'm going to choose an axe. You're like, you're going to murder people. Just a little bit of preparation would be just, just a good idea in general. If you're going out murdering, make sure you're prepared. Joseph's throat was likely slit first to incapacitate him, although the cut would not be immediately fatal. The axeman then grabbed Catherine and cut her throat from ear to ear, cutting so deeply that he neither nearly severed her head completely. Holy sh! I know, like, razors are sharp, but god damn. Catherine quickly choked to death in her own blood, hopefully before what happened next, I guess. It's kind of hard to tell what the worst way to die in this situation is. The axeman raised the Maggio's axe above his head, and brought it down violently on the couple's skulls. Peculiarly, it was the blunt end of the axe that they were struck with rather than the blade. That speculated that this was done to conceal the true manner of death, and in fact the only reason an axe was used at all was to disguise how they really died. It's also possible that the axeman, knowing he had two targets to strike, didn't want to swing the blade end down and have it get lodged in one of their skulls, forcing him to retrieve it. After the axe, the axeman removed his bloody clothes and left them in the apartment so that he could make a clean getaway without drawing attention to himself. Ah, yes, the past. <laughs> Not having to worry about DNA. So, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm leaving an item of clothing at the crime scene. Nowadays, you'd be like, are you insane? What do you think that's covered with? Uh, I don't know. DNA, dude! What are you up to? We, do the police, I don't think they keep all the stuff from like right back in the day, right? Because it'd be interesting to like go through old cases, run the DNA out a bit. Now we know definitively who did it. Done. Shockingly, the attack didn't kill Joseph. Instead, he lay in bed helplessly for the next two hours until the sound of his groaning got the attention of his brothers, Andrew and Jake, who lived in the adjoining apartment. Oh my lord, how did you survive this? The brothers called the police, but Joseph passed away minutes after they found him. To be fair, it was 1918, so it's highly unlikely the doctors could have saved his life, even if he had been found earlier, but they at least could have pumped him full of cocaine or morphine to lessen the pain. Once the body was removed, police didn't actually conduct a full search of the house. It was a different time back then, and forensic investigation wasn't really a thing yet. New Orleans hadn't even fully implemented fingerprinting, so unless extremely obvious clues were left behind, that to rely on good old-fashioned police work. I don't know. <laughs> So, like, looking for clues in someone's house would be called, I don't know, police work. Which is to say, following their gut and beating confessions out of people. Ah, yes, the good old days. I'm not saying that's what all police work was like in the 1910s, but New Orleans cops were notorious for their use of the third degree. Luckily, there were some blatant clues left behind. These were the bloody clothes that the killer left. There was the axe discarded in a neighbor's yard. More importantly, there was the bloody razor found in another neighbor's yard. Wow, dude, you're breaking all the rules. You've got... You not only are you like, yeah, no, I just got I got two murder weapons because why not create more evidence? You've got to throw away your your murder weapons. 
Like, this is absurd. You can't just chuck them over a fence and be like, good riddance, no one will ever find this. They definitely will. It's covered in blood. If someone found an axe covered in- If I found an axe covered in blood in my garden, I'd be like, don't touch it. <laughs> Call the police. <laughs> there is an axe covered in blood in my- It's probably nothing. Maybe someone just left their bloodied axe from all of their butchery in my garden. But just in case, let's not touch it. And let's give the bobbies a ring. Just in case. This was one of three key pieces of evidence that the police would use in identifying their key suspect. The razor belonged to Andrew Maggio, who worked as a barber. An employee of Andrew's recognized the razor and mentioned that Andrew had taken it home from work two days prior, claiming that he wanted to hone a nick out of the blade. The razor must have been dinged up pretty bad if he wasn't able to fix it and bring it back to work the following day. Or, you know, just didn't get around to it. Whatever, that's okay. If you recall, and it wasn't long ago, Andrew was also one of the two that found Joseph's body. He didn't hear someone breaking into the house or brutally murdering his brother and sister-in-law, but two hours later, he heard the sounds of groaning coming from the room. That's mighty suspicious. Um, I don't know. Like, yeah, I guess someone getting whacked with an axe is going to be pretty loud. It depends how loud he was groaning. Finally, there's the issue of motive. Andrew didn't have a clear motive, but the murder scene didn't present one either. Money and valuables were left out in plain sight, but nothing had been stolen except the murder weapons, which were then discarded. It's not to say that Joseph couldn't have had some enemies, but his brother somehow slept through the attack in which nothing was stolen and his razor was used as the murder weapon, so the police were sure they had their main man. Um, I don't know, that just seems like the razor was just a weapon of opportunity that someone took up. If there's no motive for killing his brother, why would you assume he killed his brother? That's <laughs> bad police work. During his interrogation, Andrew had difficulty establishing an alibi or keeping his story entirely straight. The fact that he had trouble coming up with an alibi is not particularly surprising. To be honest, it was late at night when the murder took place, sometime around 1am. For me, establishing an alibi at that time of night would be trivial because my circadian rhythm is f***ed up and my laptop and cell phone would make it clear what I was doing. For a person who sleeps at normal human hours, especially before all of our modern self-surveillance technology, how would a single man establish an alibi for 1am? I'm sure every conversation on the topic went pretty much the same. All right, creep, where were you at 1am last night? It was 1am. I was in bed, sleeping. Do you have anyone who could corroborate that story? Don't I wish. <laughs> <laughs> or if they felt like tempting fate. Yeah, your mum. As for the inconsistencies with his story and how he was able to sleep through the noise, Andrew had a pretty good answer for that. He was about to go join the Navy and potentially head off to fight in the First World War, so he had gotten completely shit-faced earlier in the night. Ultimately, police would release Andrew. Based on the evidence they did have and the fact that no other crimes were yet tied to this killer, it's completely understandable that they'd really have wanted to nail Andrew for it, but without harder evidence and with no way to actually disprove his story, their hands were tied. Fortunately for Andrew, it wouldn't be long before he was no longer the chief suspect. It's like, I don't think he did that. And I think in retrospect, we know he didn't. But it's like, police, there's not a lot tying him to it. Leave the poor man alone. It's like he doesn't have an alibi because he was in bed with your mum. Sex lies and German spies. It was June the 27th, just over a month since the Axeman's first murders. This time, his targets were Louis Bessemer and Harriet Lowe. Like the first victim, Louis was another Italian grocer. Louis had a small apartment in the back of the grocery store where he and Harriet were in bed. Again, the Axeman gained entry by chiseling a panel off of the door to get inside. He walked inside, retrieved Louis's hatchet from the bathroom, the most logical of rooms to keep a hatchet in. Why are you keeping a hatchet in your toilet? <laughs> What's up? 
It was after just 7 a.m. when he went into the bedroom and swung the hatchet down, striking him above the right temple. This time, the axe man was using the business end of the hatchet. He swung down at Harriet, hitting her just above the left ear and possibly lodging the hatchet in her skull briefly. Had he orchestrated this attack a few minutes earlier, he might have had time to finish the job. Instead, he was interrupted. The driver of a bakery wagon had been waiting outside for Lewis to come and accept his delivery, and he decided to let himself in when Lewis didn't show. He came inside and found the couple laying in a pool of their own blood, the hatchet on the bedroom floor. So, this is how the story is often reported. The delivery driver never saw anyone else, so it's possible that the Axeman had actually attacked them much earlier in the evening and just left them, assuming they would die from their wounds like the previous victims. Once again, the Axeman had come into a home by removing a panel on the door. He had attacked a couple in bed with an axe and left without stealing anything. The victims were Italian immigrants. The occupation may have been a coincidence, but it also might not have been. It's like, yeah, the man who has a grudge against grocers. There's got to be a very small group of people. So find people have grudges against grocers and round them up. Like, I don't think about grocery at all. I'm just like, yeah, there's people in the shops and you say hello they sell you some milk, and then you leave. How could you possibly have a grudge against a grocer? However, police didn't draw any connection between the two attacks, at least not publicly. It's possible they were trying to play it close to the chest, but no records or evidence to exist to suggest that they actually believed, at this point, the crimes were related. When you say something, do you say close to the vest or close to the chest? Because I was recording a script the other day, I think it was from Kevin, and someone also said close to the vest. And I've always said close to the chest. Like to keep something close to your chest, like, you know, like this, which I guess is the same meaning as close to the vest. But I've always thought it was chest. Let me know in the comments. What do people use? Close to the chest? Close to the vest? Who knows? Who cares? Let's move on. There's some pretty strong evidence that they never considered the possibility, because what followed was a scandalous dumpster fire that captivated the citizens of New Orleans. When the delivery driver found the couple, Harriet was unconscious and Lewis was dazed, but he was lucid. They were taken to charity hospital to recover. Almost immediately after the attack, police arrested a former employee of Lewis's, an African-American man who had worked at the store until a couple of weeks before the attack. I'm guessing he was a suspect because he was fired, but why he no longer worked there doesn't seem to be clear. Either way, that's the only reason he was arrested, because there was absolutely zero evidence of his involvement. Um, that's the only reason he was arrested? It's about racism, man. Gonna go also, this was the 1910s and he was black. They believed he had attacked the couple so that he could rob the store despite the fact that nothing was taken. When Harriet woke up, she told the police she remembered being attacked by a mulatto man, but the police called her delusional and refused to release their suspect based on the victim's eyewitness testimony. What is a mulatto? Look up. Mulatto. Is a racial classification to refer to people of mixed African or European ancestry? Okay. Okay. What's the politically correct way for this now? Uh, I don't know. Um, well, I guess it was just in the dictionary. Mixed ancestry. Uh, okay, thank you. Good. But the police called her delusional and refused to release their suspect based on the victim's eyewitness testimony. Eventually, it was released due to a complete lack of evidence. But it was while he was in custody that things got really crazy. Harriet started to create a media frenzy from the very start. She was extremely outspoken and insisted on making scandalous and sometimes false comments to the media, especially with regards to Lewis. The media ate this behavior up, and the drama only intensified when, upon someone trying to find the room of Mrs. Harriet Lowe, though, discovered that there was no such person in the hospital. She was Harriet Lowe, but she wasn't Mrs. There was a Mrs. Lewis Bessemer, but Harriet wasn't here. 
A few days after the revelation that Harriet was his mistress. Oh, okay. I was like putting it to What am I missing? I'm I can't put it together. There we go. Lewis's real wife returns from her trip to Cincinnati. It was a media sensation that could easily have inspired writers of America's first soap operas in the 1930s. Things only escalated when a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were found in a trunk in Lewis's home. Police believed he may have been a German spy, a sentiment inflamed by some of Harriet's false statements. What's he going to be spying on? He's literally, he's a grocer in a random American city. What, wait, he's just being, I must spy on the life of average Americans. All right. It became such an outrageous media circus that it kind of feels like people genuinely forgot there was a f axe murderer on the loose. Police began investigating Lewis and his potential acts of espionage, which did not exist. But when Harrier made a statement that she believed he was a German spy, Lewis was immediately arrested. Two days after his arrest, Lewis was let go on account of him obviously not being a spy, but the lead investigators were demoted for allowing him to go free. <laughs> Why? It's like we arrested him, he's not a spy, we let him go. Are you getting busted down to, like, patrolman for that? I don't know if patrolman is a low rank. I don't know. I just mean the, the, like, the police who just walk the streets and look out for crimes rather than, like... I don't know. Look, I know all of my ranks about American police from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So, the, the, the dude at the top, what's he called? There's the, there's the detectives and then um, sergeant. And then what's above sergeant? Who's a... Uh, oh, God, what's it called? It doesn't matter. Let's move on. On August the 3rd, over a month after their attack, Harriet underwent surgery. Her face had been partially paralyzed from the attack, but the surgeons thought that they could fix it. They were very wrong, and she would die as a result of the failed surgery two days later. Ah, surgery. <laughs> over a hundred years ago. <laughs> Scary business. As she lay in bed dying, Harriet accused Lewis of being the one that attacked her. It should be noted at this point prior to the surgery, but after accusing Lewis of being a spy, she had actually been released from the hospital, at which point the couple went back to cohabiting in the back of the grocery store. The police didn't feel this was an important piece of evidence, so as soon as she directly accused Lewis of attacking her, he was arrested and charged with a murder. He sat in prison for nine months awaiting trial, where he was finally acquitted after a ten-minute jury deliberation, because of course he was. Because, well, this is all insane. It's hard to imagine Simon hasn't already said this yet, but just in case, police, what are you up to? Oh, we've said it. <laughs> Connecting the crimes. There's a good chance that the Axeman was following the entire media show surrounding Lewis and Harriet closely, basking in the chaos that he had created. But when Harriet passed away following her failed surgery and with Lewis already in prison for murder, the show was over. Harriet died on August the 5th, news that undoubtedly made the evening paper. That night, the Axeman claimed his next victim. This time, it was not a couple, but rather a woman, home alone, that was attacked. It's possible that the Axeman had come for both of them, but the husband was working late that evening. More specifically, her Italian husband was working late at his grocery store. Okay, never mind what I said. One grocery store is a grocery store. Two grocery stores is a convenience. Three grocery stores... And someone hates the grocery man. Anne Schneider, eight months pregnant, woke up as the shadowy figure standing over her began bashing her head in. But the details of this attack are less clear. This time, there uh, was no signs of forced entry. Anne was hit in the face, repeatedly, and her scalp was cut open. But the weapon this time was almost certainly not an axe. Perhaps Anne and her husband didn't own an axe, or perhaps the killer chose to show some level of mercy to the unborn child. No way, it's probably not that second option. When her husband Ed returned home shortly after midnight, he found his wife in bed, her face covered in blood, but she was alive. 
and was taken to the hospital, where she gave birth to a healthy baby two days later. She made a full recovery. Excellent news. But she couldn't remember anything about the attack, or more specifically, the attacker. Honestly, while it would be nice for him to be caught, that's probably for her for the better. Like, you don't want to remember that. It was dark, and she was already being hit when she woke up. Oh, never mind, she just couldn't see him. That's miserable. So it's hardly surprising that she couldn't remember anything identifying the culprit. Not long after Anne went to the hospital, a man named James Gleason was arrested for the attack. He was an ex-convict, and the 1918 version of Ronnie Dobbs, a deep cut that I'm guessing Simon isn't familiar with, no idea who Ronnie Dobbs is. No idea. You see, James was arrested for running from the police. He explained that he had been arrested so many times that he just ran whenever he saw the police, and the police chased him. He hadn't actually done anything wrong. This time and he was let go to a to- due to a total lack of evidence. However, with the third attack, the police finally connected all three cases. They did not explicitly state that they believed there was a single perpetrator behind the attacks, but they did at least publicly entertain that it was a possibility. Guys, guys, they are all grocers. They are all being attacked at night, in bed, by similar weapons. And we're like, what a coincidence. Three axe murders in such a short space of time. What are you up to? Even though the weapon was almost certainly not an axe in this instance, clearly somebody had it out for the Italian grocers of New Orleans. Yet that's not the only thing that's similar. They're all brutal attacks in the night. But with Anne recovering fully and her baby surviving, this was hardly the media sensation that the previous attack was. There was no affair, no international espionage, just a beat-up Italian woman. By and large, the people of New Orleans weren't that concerned with the well-being of a bunch of Italians. Most of the Italian immigrants to Louisiana were Sicilian, and the prevailing sentiment in the American South at the time was those swarthy dagos were no better than Negroes. Wow, the past. (laughs) If we suspect that the Axeman was following the news, the lack of coverage may be why the next attack happened so much faster than the previous two. Only five days later, on August 10th, Pauline and Mary Bruno woke up from noise coming from the adjacent room. They entered and saw their elderly uncle, Joseph Romano, bleeding from his head. The attacker was already escaping when the girls came in, but they identified him as a dark-skinned, heavy-set man wearing a dark suit and slouched hat. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. They called for an ambulance, and despite his injuries, Joseph was able to walk to the ambulance on his own when it arrived. Like with the first two attacks, a door panel had been pried off to gain entry, and a bloody axe was found in the backyard. This time the house appeared to have been ransacked, but nothing was stolen. Despite seeming to have been reasonably okay immediately following the attack, Joseph would die from head trauma in the hospital two days later. Yeah, it's one of those things, it's like you bang your head, and it's like, you you know, something could be going on in your brain. What was that? I was watching a TV show the other day. Oh yeah, Mr. Corman. Weird show, really weird show. And it's like someone gets in a fight and they just fall down and knock their heads and it's like, yeah, he dies. Because it's just like he had like a brain bleed or whatever. It's really intense. <laughs> if you like, isn't it? What's the rule? Like if you if you lose consciousness, get your head checked out. With two attacks in less than a week, the public were whipped into a frenzy. People were terrified and police received frequent reports of people finding axes in their yard or believing that the axe man was lurking around neighborhoods. If the killer was looking for a big reaction, well, they finally got it. There was no longer any doubt that these crimes were connected. They were far too similar. In addition to the general terror among the citizens, police had become more vocal as well. Particularly one retired detective, an Italian man named John D'Antonio, made several public statements regarding the killer. However, because he was retired, he wasn't actually working the case and was just taking the opportunity to publicly speculate on the crimes. First, he suggested that the Axeman was the same person responsible for the earlier murders, the ones now attributed to the mulatto axe murderer who we mentioned earlier. 
His other speculation was more reasonable, though not terribly helpful to the average person. He made some comparisons between the Axeman and Jack the Ripper, but his most notable comparison was that of Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. Wait, how can you... How can you speculate about this? How do you know that this guy, obviously he's got some axe murderer side and the other side of him is completely normal? Why can't he? Isn't it more likely he's just a regular psycho? Unfortunately, when you tell a bunch of hysterically panicked citizens that the killer probably seems like any normal person except when they're killing, well, that certainly isn't going to make anybody feel more safe. It's hard to guess as to the exact reason, but the Axeman took a long break following this murder. It was likely a combination of having already gotten the reaction he wanted and needing to let the heat die down a bit. Eventually, both the increased police scrutiny and public fear would die down and people began to let their guard down. Seven months after the murder of Joseph Romano, the Axeman would strike again. It was now March 1919, and this time he had chosen to leave the city of New Orleans and visit the suburb of Gretna on the other side of the Mississippi. Here, he would create his next media sensation. On March the 10th, screams were heard coming from the residence of Charles and Rosie Cortemiglia. The next-door neighbor, 69-year-old Ayalando Jordan, rushed over to see what was happening. When he arrived, he saw that the family had been brutally attacked. Charles was laying on the blood-drenched floor, clinging to life. Rosie was in the doorway, blood pouring from her skull. In her arms was the deceased body of their two-year-old child, Mary. Ayalando called the police, and the couple were rushed to Charity Hospital. Police found a bloody axe on the back porch and saw that a panel of the door had been chiselled off. The New Orleans police caught wind of the murder, and they immediately contacted authorities in Gretna, absolutely convinced that it was the work of the Axeman. But Gretna's chief of police had already decided to follow his gut, and his gut told him that this was the work of Arando and his 17-year-old son, Frank. Wait, they're the ones that discovered it and called the police. Police, why? Charles and Rosie survived the attack, with Charles being released from the hospital two days later. Rosie was in worse shape, and she stayed in the care of the doctors much longer. As she tried to recover, both physically and emotionally, from the loss of her daughter, police constantly harassed her, trying to interrogate her in a hospital bed. She's the victim. Leave her alone. Let her recover. Again, police, what are you doing? The Cortemiglias and Jordans were both grocers, and as such would have been in direct competition with one another. The Gretna police were convinced that the murder and assaults were the result of a family vendetta, and they weren't interested in taking no for an answer. The entire time the police hounded Rosie in a hospital bed, trying to get her to point blame at the Jordans, she insisted that she had no idea who had attacked her. Once Rosie had finally recovered to the point that the hospital was ready to release her, she was immediately arrested and placed in jail as a material witness. Why? She's a witness. Why would you place her in jail? What is that about? Is that some weird past sh-? Police refused to release her from jail until she signed a sworn affidavit stating that it was the Jordans that had attacked her family. They were then arrested and placed on trial for murder. That's insane. So you're essentially like, yeah, we've kidnapped you, and until you sign this document saying something that you don't believe, we're not going to release you. Again, police, what the f*** are you up to? This is appalling. The only evidence against the accused was Rosie's confession, a confession that her physician testified was unreliable. Of course it was unreliable. It was literally signed under duress. Ayalando was too old and in too poor a health to have perpetrated the attack. And at six feet tall and 200 pounds, Frank was far too large to have fit through the hole from the single missing panel in the door. But the police had their coerced confession and they weren't going to let a silly thing like facts get in the way of obtaining a conviction. It seems like, you know, we often talk about uh, police getting railroaded. So they'll like 
find some suspects and then they'll be like it's this guy and then they'll get the evidence to match it being that guy like so they're proven right i think it's not just the police like humans like that in general it's like we like having our thoughts and assumptions confirmed rather than disproven but it seems like here the police are like no 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 we want to be railroaded we want to be led to this conclusion like even though we know it might be wrong which is just shit police work the jordans were found guilty of mary's murder because of his advanced age and poor health alonzo was sentenced to life in prison frank was sentenced to hang Following the conviction, Charles divorced Rosie. Nine months later, Rosie walked into the offices of the New Orleans paper, the Times Pecan. She claimed that St. Joseph had come to her in a dream, and she had to tell the truth and confess her misdeed. After giving her story to the reporters, she signed a new affidavit, retracting her testimony. Not wanting to lose their conviction, the prosecutors threatened Rosie with perjury charges if she didn't stick to the story that she previously testified to. How, this is so corrupt. Jesus, she's why do you guys want this guy to hang so bad do you really need to just close the case so quickly even like is it not going to hang over you that you basically killed an innocent man she chose to stand her grounds and roughly a year after their conviction the jordans were released from jail the devil's music while all of this was going on in Gretna, something else was taking place in New Orleans. On March the 13th, three days after the attack on the Cortemiglia family, the Times for Cannes received a letter that claimed to be from the Axeman. To this day, it's unknown whether or not the letter was genuine. Based on how much attention the killer seemed to be paying to the news surrounding his crimes, combined with the refusal of the police to credit him with a recent attack, I'm personally inclined to believe that it is. The letter is absolutely insane, but it speaks for itself. The return address for the letter was hell, and my original version reads. This is a lengthy quote. Let's get into it. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleans and your foolish police call the Axeman. Well, I think we can agree the police are pretty foolish. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. Undoubtedly, you Orleans think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in a close relationship with the angel of death now to be exact 12 15 earthly time on next tuesday night i'm going to pass over new orleans in my infinite mercy i'm going to make a little proposition to you people here it is i'm very fond of jazz music and i swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time i have just mentioned if everyone has a jazz band going well then so much the better for you people one thing is certain and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific tuesday night if there be any will get the axe well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. Signed, The Axeman. This is just like, this guy's out of his mind. I think it's, I, I agree with Kevin, and I think if I remember from like previously, whatever video i made about this like I, I was also like yes it's from him 
The guy's just, he's out of his mind. I'd love to talk about the differing degrees of accuracy in various translations of the Bible, or how many languages have words with different but very similar meanings that can only be determined by the intimate understanding of the context. I'd love to, but we just don't have the time. Instead, I'll just say that Tartarus is the fiery pits in the depths of Hades from Greek mythology, and is not part of the Christian hell to which the Axeman clearly refers in the full version of the letter. The word is no more appropriate in this context than claiming he was from Asphodel, Elysium, or Hogwarts. In short, I don't think the Axeman is actually an immortal demon as he claims. What? I just, I, I really thought he was. <laughs> Despite this, the letter does seem to display a level of education and intellect greater than we might expect for the Axeman. I still think it's more likely than not that the killer was the author of the letter, but there's definitely room for doubt. Regardless, the message was clear. Jazz it out or get the axe. I have to say I thought Kevin must have cleaned up the letter because it's all very, like, it's very readable for something from 100 years ago where normally it's like, what are you trying to say? And why didn't you know how to use punctuation? People of the past, what's up? So do people heed the warnings of this letter? Well, it's pretty difficult to say. We know that dance halls were filled to capacity and there were a lot of parties that night, particularly among the Italian community. For your average resident, we really don't know. The reporting at the time was sensationalized and it had been playing into supernatural and occult angles even before this letter was published. Even if newspapers weren't trying to play up the murders to sell more copies, it's not really an easy thing to get an accurate accounting of. There were over 300,000 people living in the city at the time. It's not like investigative journalists could just walk past every house at 12.15 to see if they had a jazz band playing. There were certainly more parties that night than there would have otherwise have been, and the dance halls no doubt loved the extra business on a Tuesday night. But it is extremely unlikely that all the Italians, let alone the entire city, stayed up past midnight to obey the instructions put forth in that letter. Yeah, I have to say, like, if I lived in a giant city and they were like this, 300,000 people, it's a big city. I'd be like, nah, no, I'm just going to go to bed. <laughs> just going to lock the door extra tight and sleep with, uh, you know, just give a gun under the pillow, like James Bond. Or just leave the city for the day. Just be like, I'm just going to go stay out somewhere else. Going to take a nice Tuesday night away. Whether they did or not, there were no attacks that night, which gave the paper's license to report that the whole of New Orleans had caved to the Axeman's demands. After all, jazz was known as the devil's music, so what better way to say they warded off the attacks of a horrible demon than by sating his appetite with jazz. It was this letter that would be the Axeman's claim to fame, and the only reason that the story didn't fade completely into obscurity. Later that year, local musician Joseph Devilla released a song called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, Don't Scare Me Papa. The album cover featured a terrified-looking family playing music, and it was one of the first songs written about a serial killer. The Final Attacks For the next five months after the Axeman's letter was published in the paper, there were no attacks. People slowly began to let their guards down again, thinking that the letter may have been the Axeman's final act before disappearing into the shadows forever. Then, on the night of August 10, 1919, he emerged once more. The attack was largely the same as the previous incidents. The Axeman pried away a panel from the back door to make his way inside the home of Steve Boker, yet another Italian grocer. Steve was sleeping in bed, briefly waking up to see the shadowy figure standing over him before the blow to the head knocked him back and unconscious. Upon waking up, Steve ran out to the street to try and find his assailant and figure out what was going on. It was during this investigation that he discovered his skull had been cracked open, and so he ran to his neighbor's house, where he immediately collapsed and fell unconscious again. He was taken to the hospital, where he made a full recovery from his injuries, but he couldn't remember any useful information about the attacker. The next attack would occur less than a month later, on September 3rd. The assault was 
slightly different from the others, though that may have just been a matter of convenience. Rather than forced entry, the Axeman was simply able to enter through an open window. The victim was Sarah Lawman, a 19-year-old girl who lived alone. Though this was a second attack on a woman who was home alone, the first woman was the wife of an Italian grocer who the murderer may have expected to be home as well. Despite lacking such obvious ties to his normal victims of choice, the Axeman bludgeoned Sarah, presumably using the blunt side of the axe again. She was left bleeding from a severe head injury and with several teeth knocked out. It wasn't until neighbors, concerned for the safety of, the teen of a teenage girl living alone, came to check on Sarah that her body was discovered. She didn't answer the door, so they broke in and they found her in bed. There aren't detailed statements from the neighbors available, but the bloodied axe was found on Sarah's front lawn rather than the back. Most likely, the neighbors saw the axe before breaking through the door rather than simply overreacting to a neighbor not rushing to receive company. Sarah survived the attack as the previous victim had, but she also had no useful details that she could remember from the attack. I have to say, for someone who's murdering with an axe, or like attempting murder with an axe, it's an axe! Like, you're a bit sh are you super weak or something like i feel like that's a murder weapon that finishes the job it's not like oh yeah i stabbed them once in the arm and they i thought that was murder it's like you've attacked someone in the face with an axe a lot of your victims are surviving which is great but it's not you know it's not very effective almost two months later on october the 27th the axe man would strike for the final time mike peppertone was asleep in his bed when a noise woke up his wife she was sleeping in a different room, but made it to the bedroom door just in time to see a large man with an axe escaping from the bedroom. She then saw her husband, his head split open and splattered across the entire room. His wounds were fatal, and once again, the potential witness was unable to provide any means of identifying the Axeman. In total, that is 12 victims that are ascribed to the Axeman of New Orleans. Six were injured, six died. Dude, again, you're using an axe on people and you're only getting a 50% kill rate it's kind of kind of it's not it's not great work is it to this day the true identity of the axe man remains unknown as we have discussed there are a number of suspects and several arrests made beyond the suspicion that fell on the first victim's brother there was little to no evidence pointing toward the suspects the arrests they made ranged from the absurd to the downright illegal but there have been other suspects and theories put forth the theories even if they don't point to a particular individual give a lot of insight into what was happening with these crimes and what the motivation may have been you probably already picked up on this by now but our killer seems to have really had it out for either italian immigrants or for fresh vegetables and baked goods well i'd say he has it out specifically for italian grocers which I thought this is nice and it's like a small group. Although I live in, in Prague and all of the like grocery stores are run by Vietnamese people. I mean, not all of them, but Vietnamese is like a big immigrant group here and they seem to run all the grocery stores. And I'm thinking, so no, that's enormous. That's a really large number. It's a really large group of people. And maybe it's the same thing as New Orleans. Like Italian were a big immigrant. Italians were a big immigrant group and they like cornered the grocery store market. We will see. Suspects and theories. We'll talk about the specifically named suspects first before talking about more general theories that don't try and lay an accusation on a particular person. We talked about a number of the suspects that the police had at the time, but there's one suspect from back in the day that we haven't talked about yet. Wait, who are we missing from back in the day, early in the episode? 
It's not uncommon here at the Casual Criminals, especially with more modern cases, for there to be a suspect with a name like Unidentified Male. This is generally what a suspect is called when they find DNA or fingerprints, but have nobody to match the evidence to, though in the case of fingerprints, they wouldn't assume the sex of the person. Investigators on the Axeman case had a similar such suspect. I don't know, when someone's an axe murderer, I'm just going to say it's, like, it's a 99% chance it's a dude, right? You don't need to be like a genius criminal profiler. To, to figure that isn't like i feel like even with murders like most of most of the perpetrators and murders are dudes and then an axe murderer it's not a woman <laughs> investigators on the axeman case had a similar such suspect with a much more unusual name i understand the past was the worst but i can't possibly stress enough that i'm not joking when i tell you that the actual police were investigated that were investigating these crimes added the name unidentified vampire to the list of possible suspects. The arguments for why they believed this were stupid, and they did eventually abandon the idea. Yeah, vampires aren't real, guys. If they hadn't stopped investigating the supernatural, maybe they would have actually caught the Axeman. No, not really. A theory that was put forth by true crime writer Colin Wilson is that the killer was a man named Joseph Momfra, though there are four different spellings of that last name, which were all very common in 1910s New Orleans. The name comes up a lot as the most likely suspect, and there's a pretty compelling story that goes along with the argument. The widow of the last victim remarried, but her husband vanished without a trace. Joseph then approached her in December of 1920 and demanded $500 and all of her jewelry. She went to allegedly retrieve the items, but instead came back with two guns and shot Joseph 11 times. She was naturally arrested for the murder, but was acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. <laughs> I get it. It's like shooting someone once or threatening with a gun is self-defense, but 11 times? <laughs> That's a lot of times. Do you know, just in case. It's nice to think that one of the victims could have gotten revenge on the Axeman, but there's a few problems with this story. Yeah, why are we assuming this guy's an axe, the Axeman? He just happens to be another violent criminal. The first is that the killer never stole anything, so returning to try and extort money out of a previous victim doesn't really line up with what we know about the Axeman. The other issue is that Joseph was in jail at the time of the murders. That is a big issue, because that is a solid alibi. Being in prison, good alibi. Possibly. Oh wait, there's some doubt whether he was in jail or not. There are reports that he was in jail from 1911 to 1918, meaning he was behind bars for most of the attacks. There are other reports that he was only in jail during the seven-month stretch between 1918 and 1919 when the Axeman was inactive. There are also no contemporary records showing that the incident between Mike Pepitone's widow and Joseph Momfra ever actually happened. It's possible that a lot of the confusion comes from the fact that it was a common name and records surrounding various different people are muddying the issue. While the story of the attempted robbery turned revenge killing sound completely made up, there is another possible connection to the name Joseph Momfra. Wait, what? Why are we so keen on this guy? Just let me go back. The, the widow of the last victim remarried, but her husband vanished without a trace. Joseph approached her, tried to rob her, and then she shot him. I just don't understand what the connection is between this dude and the Axeman. It just seems like a completely unrelated crime person. And by crime person, I mean criminal. What, what, why are we so keen on connecting these two people? What did I miss? Did I miss something? I just went back and reread it. What am, I, what am I missing? While the story of the attempted robbery turned revenge killing sounds completely true to me, there is another possible connection to the name Joseph Momfra. I only talked about the 12 canonical victims of the Axeman. There are some who dispute that any of the attacks that occurred after the infamous letter are tied to the same killer, 
but these 12 are generally agreed upon to be the true victims of the Axeman. However, I also mentioned that originally there were other murders that were tied to the same individual. If we consider the possibility that some may have actually been victims of the same killer, then we find another link to Joseph. Well, I hope it's a more strong link because the previous one's just super tenuous. I, again, I wonder just what am I missing? In 1912, the Scheimbras, another Italian couple, were shot and killed in their home. Other than being Italian, there doesn't seem to be much linking this to the Axeman's crimes, but some people believe that this was an early, early murder by the culprit before he had fully developed his MO. No one was ever charged with these murders, but the main suspect was a man named Frank Doc Murphy, who was also known to go by the alias Leon Joseph Monfra. I don't really buy this, as it feels like an attempt to link an unrelated crime to the Axeman just to tie him to the name Joseph Monfra, a name that seems to have been put forth by one true crime writer and then thoroughly debunked by others. To me, it feels too much like grasping at straws or trying to force evidence to fit a theory. Oh boy, does it. This is, or, this is almost on the point of ridiculousness, in my opinion. Onto the more general theories, then, police did suspect that these killings may have been mafia-related. There were three main types of Italian-related violence at the time. One of them was the vendetta system, something the Sicilians had brought with them to America. Sicilians didn't trust their own justice system, and they didn't trust the authorities in the United States either. Instead, they took it upon themselves to work out their own issues with extreme severity. This is why the Gretna police were so insistent that the attack on the court Migliers had to, have, had to have been a vendetta by their neighbors. That insistence is also why you can't really blame the Italians for not trusting the authorities. In addition to vendettas, there was also the Black Hand. The Black Hand wasn't actually an organization, it was just a specific type of petty extortion. The Mafia was known for blackhand crime as well, as with their famous protection racket. You know, the whole, it's a real nice story you've got here, a bit of shame something happened to it, you should probably pay us, so we'll protect you from that happening. Yeah, good. That's like the classic Mafia thing, isn't it? However, while the Mafia is famous for this behavior, blackhand crime was common in Italian communities and was rarely actually the result of organized crime. It's worth noting that the aforementioned Joseph Bonfra, who may or may not have been in jail at the time of the murders, was known for this type of blackmail. People generally grouped vendettas and black hand crime under the same blanket term of mafia. This means that whilst there's a good chance that the police were on the right track in terms of motive, uh, they were under the assumption that it was an actual criminal organization behind the attacks rather than a single individual. The idea that this was black hand crime makes a lot of sense. Italian grocers were among the most common targets of extortion. While it's possible, there are two major points of contention that make this less likely. Well, one, it's just not like before Kevin gets into his, I just say it's just a massive escalation. If it's like a typical, hey, this, what a nice store you got here, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. It's like, well, if they don't give you the money, you don't go to them and then axe murder them. You smash up their store until they get the message. Like, that's how you, that's how the scam works. <laughs> not like, so I'm going to murder you because then you're not getting any money anyway because they're dead. The first comes from John D'Antonio, the retired Italian detective we mentioned earlier, who likens the killer to Jekyll and Hyde. He believed that it was unlikely that these were blackhand attacks because half of the Axeman's victims survived. In a real case of blackhand crime, there would be no survivors. The other issue that makes this a little less likely is that there were so many attacks by the same person. It's important to be able to show the people you're attempting to extort that you mean business so they'll actually pay up. But after the first couple was murdered in their home, people wouldn't continue to cavalierly disregard the extortion requests. Okay, fair enough. So I get why one grocer would be murdered to send a message to all the other grocers, but I just stand by the fact, just smash the store up. 
that's much more direct. And like, then they're still around and everyone will pay up because it'll be like, yeah, that my store did get smashed up. They'll even spread message about it rather than just murdering, which is way more intense and just feels completely unnecessary and also a bad business decision. And if that many people did take him seriously but were unable to pay, well, then you're charging too much. The most likely scenario is that it was just a deranged serial killer who was racially motivated. I mentioned how Italians were looked down on in the American South, but it was actually more complicated than simply being disliked based on having darker skin. Italians would come to the United States and take jobs on plantations, harvesting sugarcane and cotton alongside African Americans. They didn't understand the racial hierarchy that existed, so they didn't realize taking these jobs made them appear as less than in the eyes of others. If they chose to stay on the plantations, it may have been fine, but it was worse because they didn't understand their place. Few Italians remained on a plantation more than a couple of years, which was a major annoyance to the landowners, who some of whom were old enough to remember when they were allowed to own these workers as property. They would complain that the Italian workers were only ever good for a couple of years because they hoarded all of their wages until they had enough money to be ready to start a fruit shop or a grocery store. The corner grocery store industry was entirely dominated by Italians, most of whom had originally worked on the plantations beforehand. There you go, that's what I was saying. Like... There, it's not about Italian grocers, it's just about Italians. They just happen to all be grocers, or a lot of them are grocers. The idea of the Axeman just being a racist serial killer is hardly far-fetched, and it ties almost everything together without the use of demons or vampires. Yeah, all the just wild stretches to people and all of this stuff, it just seems to be like a racist murderer. Classic, you know, just boring... <laughs> The only thing that doesn't explain is the letter. Surely if the killer was racially motivated, then the letter would just have been some tirade about how much Italians suck and were ruining America, right? All about that jazz. What if the Axeman wasn't just a fan of jazz? What if jazz was the motivation for the attacks themselves? That seems a bit unlikely. There are a few theories that heavily incorporate jazz into the motivation for the attacks themselves. One theory was that the Axeman was angry that the New Orleans Red Light District had been shut down by the US Navy. The Red Light District was more than just brothels. It also included clubs, dance halls, and gambling dens, places where jazz music all thrived. It's not the most outrageous motivation possible, but the targets, all being Italian grocers, doesn't make a lot of sense in this scenario. And it also just seems like a major overreaction. It's like, oh no, my favorite part of town has been closed down. Let's go on a murderous rage killing spree. Yeah, no, I don't think that's likely. I still think racist serial killer. <laughs> it was also proposed that the Axeman may have been defending Jazz's honor from the libelist hacks over at the Times Pecan. In the summer of 1918, the newspaper published an editorial that shit all over Jazz, saying that it wasn't even music and it was just noise. Not only does this theory fail to address the victims, were Italian grocers rather than newspaper writers or editors, the editorial wasn't published until after the first murders had taken place. I know these sound kind of silly so far, but there is one other theory involving jazz that is actually pretty plausible. Jazz was invented in the African-American communities in New Orleans. It was heavily influenced by blues and ragtime, but also has roots in African rhythmic rituals. If you were to ask the average person who invented jazz or where it happened, they'd probably guess it was African-Americans living in the South, even if they couldn't be more specific than that. But a funny thing happens if you Google and search for who invented jazz. The very first thing you'll see is the name Nick LaRocca, an Italian man from New Orleans. 
The very first jazz album ever released was the original Dixieland Jazz Band in 1917. It's a controversial album, both because the band was fronted by Sicilian immigrants, but also because people felt that the album isn't actually jazz. A key component of jazz is improvisation, and the fact that everything on the album was written beforehand with no improv whatsoever was considered blasphemous. The album has been referred to as jazz-like, but not jazz. A bastardized version of the beloved musical style of New Orleans being considered the first official jazz recording could already be enough to enrage fans of the genre, but Nick LaRocca took it further by repeatedly claiming that he personally invented jazz. It's a bold claim to make, and one that he certainly had to have recognized was a lie. Is that enough to drive a person to murder? Bloody well shouldn't be, shouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, someone tried to murder Ronald Reagan so he could get a date with Jodie Foster, so I can't really put anything past a crazy person. It would make more sense that LaRocca would be the intended target, but he could have proven to be too high profile to successfully assassinate. In that case, the killer could have taken his aggression out on the Italian community as a whole for sullying the good name of jazz. No, I just think it's a racist killer. Someone didn't like Italians, so he murdered them. Simple. Um, Occam's razor, in my opinion. Wrap up. Like most centuries-old cold cases, there's pretty much no way we'll ever get a definitive answer as the identity of the Axeman of New Orleans. It's a pretty bad sign that of all the specifically named suspects, unidentified vampire fails to be less plausible than the alternatives. It's absolutely not plausible because vampires aren't real, but it's also not any of the other people that we've named either. I'm also inclined to agree with the detective that didn't believe it was likely to be a vendetta or black-hand crime since half of the victims survived. The Axeman was- I also- it does- like I said, it doesn't make business sense. Why would you kill people you're trying to extort money from? Just extort them. Smash up their store, break their legs. That sort of stuff. You don't brutally murder them. It makes no business sense. The Axeman was rarely interrupted during the act, so if his goal was specifically to kill them, then they would all have died. At the end of the day, these attacks were just likely the result of 1910s Southern racism perpetrated by a run-of-the-mill psychopath. The fact that the victims were attacked so brutally, yet not always fatally, points to the idea that the killer just had a lot of rage against the Italians in general. It's hard to believe that the individual victims could have been specifically targeted and attacked so brutally without any particular care given to whether or not they actually died. It seems, instead, that it was just a disgusting individual who took pleasure in what he was doing, reveling in the brutality of it all, rather than focusing on any sort of efficacy beyond using the straight razor in the first attack. I left out a lot of the gorier details of the attacks, particularly with regards to shrapnel of brain and skull strewn around the rooms, but suffice to say that the Axeman definitely loved what he was doing. But beyond most likely just being a racist psychopath, was the Axeman truly a lover of jazz, and did he really compose the letter that he sent to the newspapers? While I do think it's more likely than not, I don't think it's a slam dunk. I'm definitely curious what Simon and you listening believe about the authenticity of the letter. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, when I was reading through it, I'm like, yeah, I believe it. Um, is it slam dunk? Of course not. There's not really any evidence to support it, but it just seems, I don't know, to me it seems more likely than not. I mean, why not? It's also it's it's risky, not be if you're not the murderer and you send a, a letter to the papers saying that you are the murderer and the police have already been shown to want to railroad people to like close the case. That is a risky business, dude. I mentioned that the first reference to the Axeman after 1919 was in a 1945 collection of Louisiana folktales. From there, it was nearly another 40 years until an Australian rock bands released an album called The Axeman's Jazz, but things have picked up quite a bit. Interest in the admittedly bizarre case has increased, and references across pop culture have been 
have become increasingly common since the 2000s. From the novel Haunted by Fight Club author Chuck Palahniuk, pa- pa- Chuck Palahniuk, Palahniuk? Uh, to an episode of American Horror Story, to last week tonight with John Oliver, to the Walking Dead VR game, references to the Axemen are all around us now, as we can now add the casual criminals to that list of high-profile references. Yes, indeed. Let's just hope the Axeman wasn't really some sort of immortal demon. I can only imagine the carnage he would unleash if he returned to Earth, only to discover the majority of modern Americans would much rather take an axe to the skull than have to spend an entire night listening to jazz. Oh my gosh. It'd also be like, you have to, Justin Bieber exists? How is this possible? How can we have something so bad in existence? This has been an episode of The Casual Criminals. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you check it out on YouTube. If you're listening, please leave a review. That'd be amazing on YouTube. Like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.